you for joining me on the Great Deconstruction Podcast. I'm your host, Reverend Matthew Oxley, and I'm excited to share the story of Joseph Quigley with you. His parents were devout missionaries and Bible translators, and he was raised in Guatemala, where he was kind of steeped in his parents' version of, of the Christian faith. And I think you'll find his story compelling and interesting, and you'll see all the various strings that kind of hold these stories together. There are often various threads that you can follow that seem to be common, and Joseph's is no different. I hope you'll check out his social media, all of his profiles, and give him a follow. And we've also got a great list of books and resources in the show notes here that I think you'll enjoy. And I hope you really enjoyed this episode. So thank you so much. And welcome to The Great Deconstruction. I am joined by Joseph Quigley, or Joe Quigley. Do you go by Joe or Joseph? I go by whatever's easiest for you. Life's too short for Joseph sometimes, so I, I introduce <laughs> myself as Joe, but I write it as Joseph. Okay, cool. And uh, let's see, you found, I think I think you came from Mastodon, is yes. that right? Mm-hmm. Nice. Very cool. I haven't used that platform a lot, but I really like it. And you can be found on Mastodon. Let's see, at Quigs, Q-U-I-G-S, at hackyderm.io. If you know what the Fediverse is, you'll be able to find that. (laughs) And if you don't know how to spell hackyderm, you can visit quigs.link. And I I put some of my social stuff there because I think uh, one of the downsides of leaving Twitter and Facebook and all these other centralized areas is you don't have those... uh, Simple, easy usernames to memorize. <laughs> yeah, the simplicity's hurting. Uh, yeah. But I, I get way more interaction in just a few with just a few followers than I ever did with over a thousand followers on Twitter. It's strange. Yeah, it really is. But hey, I'm glad it exists. I think it's going to be a big competitor. <laughs> so Joe here is a software engineering consultant who grew up in Latin America as a sheltered missionary kid. That's interesting. We'll get more into that. With Bible translator parents, baptized at age six, myself as well. Went to a Christian college, got married, had kids, did everything right, and found himself rapidly and violently, that was a tough word, (laughs) deconstructing over the course of two years after holding it back for over a decade. I know how that feels. And mine was violent as well and rapid and Overwhelming. Yeah, uh, it's a good way to, for for lack of a better term, the 2012 and 2016 elections laid the groundwork for 2020 when he realized that his faith community didn't share or uphold the values they taught him as a child. Yeah, that's certainly familiar as well. I think that has been the nexus for a lot of people who have begun deconstructing. You can see kind of the trend yeah. going upwards since that time, especially with COVID and being at home and not being able to go to a church where your your ideas are constantly reinforced. After spending well over 500 hours listening to podcasts and reading books by evangelical and non-evangelical theologians, Christian scientists, and historians, he finally found the words and context to put his cognitive dissonance to rest. Very good. And I will go ahead and plug your your blog first, and then we'll get into a conversation. Sure. You have an every so often publication for curious people who like learning about the connections between seemingly unconnected things. I'm going to be reading this a lot more. It's for the learn dot blog and a general purpose and tech focused blog is quigs dot blog. That's Q U I G S dot blog. And yeah, go ahead. And I, I want to know more about 
being raised by missionary parents? Where were you? What what sort of work were they doing? What denomination, et cetera? Kind of give me some details and, you know, take as long as you want. Sure. So I am what is known as not only a missionary kid, but a third culture kid. I was born okay. and raised in Guatemala. That's a country just south of Mexico. And it's kind of where Central America begins. Mexicans sort of think of themselves as being North Americans. And I don't know, there might be some geological reasons for why there's a cutoff. But Guatemala is kind of where Central America begins. I believe it ends in Panama. And overall, you know, if I were in polite company, I said a very... uh, If I were in polite company, I would say that I had a a very good childhood and upbringing that was very adventurous, very unique. My parents were with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And in 1999, Wycliffe shut down. They had pretty much finished most of the translations in Guatemala. Guatemala has an indigenous population with 23 distinct languages. The national language is Spanish. So a lot of these people live in pretty remote areas. And so they, especially before the internet and mobile phones came around, they were largely unconnected to the world. So a lot of them didn't speak Spanish due to the influence of Catholicism. If you remember, if you know your church history, you'll know that up until I think 1972, mass was conducted in Latin. And then there was this kind of revival to clean things up a bit for the general populace so they can better understand what's going on by changing, you know, the liturgy to whatever the the local language was. And I think that psychology kind of influenced itself in the evangelical world. Guatemala is sort of unique in Latin America in that it is a largely evangelical and religious country. So between Catholics and evangelicals, a roughly 80 to 90% of the population is uh, religious. And in the evangelical world in particular, in the indigenous evangelical world, there's this concept that the the words of God, the Bible, is not, it's not possible for it to be holy or true, perhaps one could say, if it is revealed in their language. Their language just is not good enough. Spanish is the language of God. And so my parents saw this as they were doing these Bible translations. And when Wycliffe said, hey, we're done with translating, we're, we're leaving at the the turn of the century, they decided to leave Wycliffe and become independent missionaries. And their primary focus was on scripture use. So all these translations are out, no one's using them, and they had very strong convictions about why that was. The Mayan culture in Guatemala is more of an oral culture. It's not much of a written culture. Even to this day, if you send someone a text message, you'll have a quality interaction. But a face-to-face is a thousand times better. You know, if a picture is a thousand words of in-person conversations worth a whole novel. So that was a, a pretty big influence in my life, just nature of the environment that I was brought up in. My mother was a raised Church of Christ. My dad was raised in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And their history with mission work is actually pretty similar. My dad did not become a born-again Christian until his 20s because he knew deep down inside that the minute that he accepted Jesus into his heart, he would have to be a missionary. Christian Missionary Alliance, kind of their thing. My mom, apparently, and I haven't talked to her too much about this. This has been sort of a one-sided conversation where my, my dad's retelling the family history, you know, over over breakfast or something like that. He likes to talk. And he says that she kind of wanted to be a missionary ever since she was a, a young girl. She went and got a, a degree in, she got two degrees, and I'm blanking on several of them, but she got her master's degree in linguistics. And she went to Abilene Christian University in Texas, which is coincidentally where I also attended college. And she she needed those degrees as a woman in the 70s, 60s and 70s, to be considered a, you know, a, a true missionary. My dad was not really an academic type. And so he, he 
he landed in Guatemala with just an associate's degree. He barely snuck through the, the college in Pennsylvania that he, or I'm sorry, New York, where he was getting his, boy, I should know this. <laughs> I don't remember what his degree was in either. Was very insistent that he cut his losses and walk away with the associates because he probably wouldn't make a bachelor's. And <laughs> when he ended up joining Wycliffe, he didn't join as a Bible translator because they wanted more education. So he actually was a maintenance and mechanics guy. And so he and my mom met when he ended up fixing an appliance for her in her apartment. And she was always this, you know, young, single, highly educated, very intelligent missionary woman in a fairly patriarchal and in some ways misogynistic culture. So their dynamic is, is quite interesting just with how in the mission world, you would think that the man is doing most of the work. But at least early on before my parents had me and my sister, my mom was sort of the, the missionary breadwinner, if you will, the, the one who was doing the, the mission work. I mean, my dad was still serving as a missionary, but instead of people, it was appliances, cars, and, and, and the like. Yeah. It's hard not to respect the missionary life uh, for me because you are transporting yourself to a place that's unfamiliar and yes. a culture that you, you can't possibly understand without lots of time there. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were raised in Guatemala? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that is that okay? So uh, I'm lucky right. enough to be a dual citizen, which oh. uh, gives me very few benefits. <laughs> it just means I yeah. get to join the shortest line in immigration when visiting either the U.S. <laughs> or Guatemala. Okay, that's interesting. Tell, keep going. I saw. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no you. I saw you taking a drink. I wanted to wanted to ask you something. So go ahead. So I'm trying to think back to your your question a little bit earlier. That's kind of my my family history and kind of what brought them to Guatemala. As I mentioned, the, the, the missionary life or my, my upbringing is, is fairly unique. And so while I do have plenty of criticisms of it, I'm also grateful for that experience and kind of where it's placed me in my life. It's definitely a huge part of my, my story, my legacy, my heritage. But it's something that's often very difficult to explain to either monocultural people, people who've only lived in one country and, you know, especially in, in the U.S., especially in the South, as I learned in, in Texas, people don't even have a very good understanding of what cultures are like in neighboring states. Right. You, you know, lots no. of people in the Deep South have no idea what it's like to live in the North. And there's different yeah. cultural values between what we think is like one nation, the United States, but it's it's definitely, you know, we don't really have ethnic conflict in the ways that other countries do, but there's still that cultural war conflict that just, and I'm not trying to be disparaging or anything like that, but it's just a natural result, I believe, of the intentional isolation that communities put upon themselves. It's very difficult and time-consuming to have that curious mind learn about people who are different from yourself when you never really interact with them all that much. Would you say growing up in Guatemala, the people there were more interested in other cultures, or was it just a matter of we are exposed to other cultures, and so therefore? Surprisingly, very similar to the U.S., just because of the remoteness and the isolation. Uh -huh. So uh, to, to give you a feel for how things were until roughly before, until I left for college. We, my life kind of revolved around two physical locations. The The capital city was where my parents did a lot of their banking. We would go to an English-speaking non-denominational church. We would borrow books from the local Christian school there. I was, I was homeschooled. The two methods of schooling at the time for missionary kids were the parents stay in one place, capital city, and send their kids to the Christian school. Sorry, there's three methods. That was one of them. That didn't work for my parents because they felt like they needed to be actively involved in the day in, day out business of mission work. 
But more importantly, that was necessary for them because the mission field, for lack of a better word, that we lived in was a six to eight hour car journey. Since then, it, the the paved roads and infrastructure improvements over the last 30 years have done wonders. It's, it's far less of a taxing, time-consuming trip. But at the time, because it took so long to get anywhere to, to these small towns and villages where, where my parents worked, we would have to spend upwards of six to eight weeks at times out in this isolated you know, backside of a mountain somewhere. It's now a thriving city, but at the time it was a very small town. And then we'd come back into the the city to kind of recharge, refresh, resupply. We'd stay for two or three weeks and then head right back out again. So because of that isolation, the culture was also very unfamiliar with, the local cultures were unfamiliar with what life is like, you know, across a couple mountain ranges because it just took so long to get there. A lot of these people are subsistence farmers, so they don't have a lot of wealth or income to travel. They're kind of scraping by as best they can. You know, the, the most exposure you would get is if they had enough money, they could send their kids to a boarding school in a city a couple hours away. And, you know, these kids would be exposed to big city life. And, you know, if they came back to the the village where they grew up, they changed some things a little bit, but not a whole lot. It, it definitely, things didn't start changing until cell phones and then the internet became prevalent and then people could get connected and start to see the outside world. So, you know, having, you know, gone through that little rant about the the US culture and just the diversity and the geographic distance and expanse, even though Guatemala is roughly the size of the state of Ohio culturally with those 23 wow. different languages, people were very very different. Not like, you know, east versus west kind of like if you <laughs> pack up from New York City or that's for example, pack up from like Raleigh, North Carolina and you put yourself in Bangkok, Thailand, you'll get a little bit of culture shock. Not that drastic, but it is, imagine, you know, yeah. if you've ever visited New York City and then visited San Francisco, you'll feel that yeah. huge difference in culture, even though everyone's still kind of all the same. It's like the weird paradox yeah. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Culture is, uh, I consider myself a student of anthropology and culture mm-hmm. is kind of anthropology in its modern sense. So I've always found other cultures to be interesting and had a lot of respect for the fact that, I mean, the thing is, I come from white bread, very, very white people from England. You know, there's nothing special, it feels, about where I come from. But if I hear other people's stories, I'm just like, wow, to be so, it makes me somewhat envious of these uh, long histories that can often be told and sometimes are just verbally given. You know, but I don't. I never grew up with any of that. I didn't really know anything about my family or its history. Kind of had to figure that out on my own with Ancestry.com. It, it's interesting that other cultures seem to care more about that than at least has been handed down to me. You said that you were baptized at the age of six. Was that in in your faith tradition? Would that have been because you were quote unquote saved? You you know followed the Romans road. And your convictions followed that, or was that more of a pressure from society? Both, actually. So just for contrast, my sister did not get baptized until she was in her teens. And interestingly enough, my wife, who did not grow up in a Church of Christ environment, even though we... Excuse me, let me start over. Uh, And my wife, even though she did not grow up in a Church of Christ environment or background, although we attended... We both attended a Church of Christ university together. She didn't get baptized until her late teens. So I think just before she turned 20 or maybe after 20. My memory is a little fuzzy on that. But I, I actually baptized her personally. So oh. it's, there's a whole range there in my immediate connections. My mom 
being a member of the Church of Christ her whole childhood, to her, baptism equated with salvation. I don't know if she fully believes okay. that anymore, but at the time, it definitely was a, a big deal. It's like you, you can confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, but it's not really cemented or true until you're baptized. For Correct. me, there's home videos of me singing praise songs <laughs> about worshiping Jesus and how awesome God is at like age four, five, maybe even three, I believe. It goes way back. And, you know, we grew up in a, a fairly, from a religious perspective, a fairly authoritarian household. Family devotionals were a very common nightly occurrence. You know, it was nice to go visit friends and sleep over at their house because yeah. I didn't have to do devotional. <laughs> you know, memorizing of scripture was very important. And yeah, just that systemic social pressure, I guess, if you will, was what pushed me to be, become a, Christ, a baptized Christian at the age of six. Not all my friends shared that. Wycliffe is a non-denominational organization, so it attracts people from all sort of faith backgrounds within the, the Christian circle. So most of my peers, my friends, didn't get baptized at age six. That was definitely an anomaly. I remember one of my friends, you know, they, ever, they didn't attend our church, but they came from my baptism because that's a special thing. My dad baptized me. And after, you know, I got dried off and everything, I have a distinct memory of one of my friends asking me, like, so do you feel any different? And I thought for a minute, I'm like, no, I don't. I, you know, just like getting dunked underwater. That's about it. Just sweater. Yeah, exactly. So I think in hindsight, <laughs> part of my deconstruction, like I said, it was a, kind of like a slow process for 10 years and then became violent. But like there are certain seeds that were planted really early on where I did not really... I bought into a lot of the thinking and behavior because that's the only thing that was modeled for me, but I still questioned or was uncomfortable with certain things and I couldn't explain why because I had nothing to compare it to and I had no one who had a different perspective who I could talk to about until I, I left for college and started meeting oh. other people. Interesting. Okay. And to kind of relate it to my own story, I was I was baptized at, at or around the age six, but I had been quote unquote saved prior to that. And that was a big that was a big push. You had to do the process of accepting Jesus and then you got baptized. But right. it's really common for people around here. I'm in the state of Georgia, born and raised here. Really I really like this area. Really common for folks to be baptized really young mm -hmm. and then, you know, Every time you go to summer camp, yeah, yeah, you do it again. Yep, you know, or or anytime there's a big event, you end up doing it again because you got a good preacher that's kind of making you feel convicted. So you seems like I was probably baptized three or four times. Oh wow, uh, in total, yeah, and two or three of those were a summer camp. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, and I I also grew up Pentecostal. Oh okay, so so it was. You know, the the evidence wasn't the baptism. The evidence was, do you speak in tongues? And there was a lot of social pressure around that. And I started doing that at a very young age, probably around six or seven. And it was looking back it, while I thought this, uh, these are my convictions or whatever a six-year-old would think about that. Right. Uh, it, it was truly more of a pressure from that insular society that I was in. That's that's. It's interesting to compare and contrast, and that's why yeah, I, I do that. So what what was the thing that not really started your, your early deconstruction? Well, I guess I should ask you, you know, the 10-year period before the violence started, what kind of, what were the things that were sticking that were thorns in your side, I guess? I have a pretty good memory. So I... I'm very sensitive to rejection, okay. and so I have a very distinct and clear memory of whenever something affects me in a negative way, 
because I tried to do something that was turned down or when I see that happen in other people. So I, I think the first inkling that something weird was going on was my camp counselor. That's, you know, Christian summer camp didn't get baptized multiple times. I only needed to do that once, but definitely, you know, felt that pressure to re yeah. uh, recommit your life or, or reinvigorate your, your faith. Yeah. <laughs> but my, my camp counselor, fantastic guy. He was very down to earth, very respectful. You know, he was probably 19, maybe 20, like the, the age range between, you know, me as the teenager and the camp counselor was pretty narrow at times because these were volunteers who would come down from the States, basically short-term mission, you know, work with missionary kids. And, you know, after that week's week and a half is up, well, you know, fly back to the States, have a good experience and hopefully done some good. He, it turned out that he was gay. He came out as gay at some point on Facebook and the, the backlash to that like I just I'll never forget it because I don't I I just don't have like a it's not that I've maybe repressed these memories or anything like that it just I don't have any memories of anyone asking me about it like there's everyone talking about him but I wasn't involved and he was you know my counselor I knew him you know better than other people did <laughs> especially these parents who never interacted with him right. and so you know if you ask my sister about this phase in our life sh- my parents told her to unfriend him on Facebook because after the the summer camp director flew from Guatemala up to the States to have this intervention with him, when he decided that he was not going to live according to the ways of, of the Bible, then he was kind of written off and yeah. ostracized. And so as a result of that, all the kids at the summer camp were told to unfriend him on Facebook, cease contact. Before that, there was an inquiry into if he had molested anyone. But what's yeah. weird, like, so he's he's a male counselor and I am <laughs> you know, a male summer camp attendee. I don't know what the camper, I guess, is the word. Yeah. I don't have any memory of being asked if he molested me. Like, it's like I was completely glossed over. Maybe they thought he was targeting the younger kids. It's just so bizarre. Like, everyone's, if this is a big deal, why is no one asking me about it? They asked my sister if he yeah. had done anything. I don't know how that's relevant to her being a female <laughs> for a male right. gay counselor. Yeah. But, you know, so there's this disconnect going on. And then furthermore, I've, I've been raised to, you know, you got to treat people with love, love the, the sinner, hate the sin. I don't think I was explicitly told except maybe once or twice in a couple of Sundays at school groups, but not in my family. But it was just because this concept of, you know, people are broken. We're patient with that. And we let God work on people. So on the one hand, it felt like there was this hypocrisy of we've got all these animistic Mayan indigenous people that we're trying to reach out to they have really weird beliefs we tolerate those they may still sacrifice animals we tolerate to these deities and spirits we still tolerate that hoping that they will eventually see the light and and come to jesus but then this one american guy gets none of that and i also remember distinctly thinking like if we ostracize like he's in my psychology at the time he's definitely wrong you know being gay is wrong but if we kick him out of fellowship and just ostracize him, he's not going to want to come back. There's no way he'll reconvert <laughs> if he's right. not treated respectfully and fairly. Like it's a mistake, but mistakes can be fixed, or so I thought. Yeah. And and that really kickstarted my questioning of like what's going on because what the adults are doing and what they're saying aren't fully in a agreement. Right. And then in college, I became a little bit more involved or interested in apologetics. My my grandfather on my mom's side was very big into that, my dad as well. And so we are basically a Ravi Zacharias International Ministries family. Oof. And you know, I, I remember 
in addition to that, definitely a lot of focus on the family stuff. There was the Truth Project. I don't remember the name of the guy, but this, you know, pseudo intellectual takedown of secularism, particularly atheism, but secularism. And and this was several years after the the gay counselor incident. And so we were starting to watch those whenever my grandparents would come down. It's like this 11 DVD series when my grandparents would come down for Christmas and we'd watch that. And the... Invigorating content. Yeah. (laughs) It was very fascinating. Like it stimulated me intellectually, but for the wrong reasons, I guess you could say, because... Yeah. This these people are so convinced and they they have all the answers to evolution and secularism and you know logic but it didn't quite add up to me like it, th- there's a little bit too much intensity and vigor in these takedowns and not enough listening of the other side of right. of you know obviously these people these atheists and you know non-christians are smart they just don't know Jesus but they're kind of being treated like idiots who are intentionally crafting things like I, I there's this concept of like everything's out there to get you as a christian and you gotta yeah you gotta defend yourself i, I remember very specifically so i was into apologetics a lot in high school like a, a nutty amount and even now i see it everything that every claim that people like ravi and those like him make are partial truths yes. so it'll be like atheists believe that you evolve from nothing and atheists believe that you know it's and no. Yeah. <laughs> no. So it's it, it's and once you discover that, it's like, well, why are you being dishonest? Right. There's a dishonesty here, and why? And putting so uh, and much. I, I realize that myself. And putting so much effort, or causing the listener to have to put so much effort into investigating the claims yeah. to find the half truth or the the untrue part of the half truth. It's almost like stoicastic mind control and or truth. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but the amount of effort put in to say the untruth is far less work than it is to determine what is true. Yeah. And that investigation, I think, over 10 years, slowly, is what kind of kicked off my my deconstruction once stuff got a little more intense in 2016 and, and 2020 in particular. What was it about 2016? Was it Trump or yeah. something else? Yeah, you know, TLDR, yeah. tr- Trump. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was still very committed Christian at the time, you know, recently married. I've been married for three years by that time, two and a half years, sorry, by that time. And, you know, a lot of very smart missionary people that I grew up with were very confusingly so very supportive of Trump, even though him as a character, like, you know, the, the town drunk, the town philanderer yeah. in, in these small communities where these Christians are working, you know, they'll criticize them. They'll talk about them. You know, not disrespectful way per se, like in hindsight it was, but didn't feel that way at the time. They're given no free passes, but Trump was because right. why? Why is that? And and that was the question I kept asking myself. Like, there's a there's a reason for this. It wasn't until 2020 when I was able to put stuff in hindsight. I read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and that really opened my eyes to this blending of politics and religion. And I was largely yeah. isolated from that in Guatemala. It wasn't until college, you know, the 2008 election, <laughs> I wasn't really, I didn't participate in, wasn't old enough. But the 2012 election, where I did not vote for Obama, it had this catastrophic feeling, like in the atmosphere, in the religious atmosphere, that the last four years had gone okay. Like Obama hadn't taken right. anyone's guns. He hadn't locked up any Christians. Islam right. <laughs> hadn't taken control of the government. Like, I don't know how much more he can do in the next <laughs> in the next four years. And then you've got that political trend of like, you know, in the second term, usually the the party in power loses control of 
one of or both of the houses. So like Obama's going to be handcuffed or it's going to have one hand behind his back. He's going to be severely handicapped politically until, you know, he's out. So why all the fuss about him winning again? And then to see that sort of replayed, but opposite with Trump, where it's like, okay, now we've got the good guy who's kind of a bad guy. If you believe in, you know, all the tenets of the Bible and, you know, you follow the teachings of Paul and the things that he was upset about. <laughs> and now we're supporting him politically, but not spiritually, but we're hoping he says he's a Christian. Like all, all it's just severe cognitive dissonance on all levels. Like yeah. I, I, I don't feel like there's much effort in trying to unpack that too much because the short answer is, you know, Christians in the States are very political and, you know, many Christians who are nominally Christian are more active in politics than they are in their church. So if, yeah. if the guy says enough of the right things, like, since politics is slightly more important, like that's where the energy and the focus and the outrage and everything is going to be. But I thought that my circle, my the, the adults that I respected who raised me would be a little more discerning and they weren't. And that was the, the biggest trigger for me is it's like, yeah, Hillary's bad. This guy is not great, but we'll have to deal with it. And then over the next four years, there were just so many passes given to Trump that yeah, it's like, well, Hillary's not around anymore. Why aren't we, you know, yeah. being more critical? <laughs> Why aren't we pushing back on some things that are clearly oddly enough, she was not in prison as she was supposed to be. Yes, from what I understand. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, that 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 disturbed me and a lot of people, and it it changed my respect for people that I did yes. have respect for in a big way because I, if I had done any of the things that Trump was accused of or that we know he did. People would have crucified me for it because uh, mm. I am a, a publicly known in my small town. Everybody knows that Matt's the atheist. <laughs> Matt's the one that's challenging the religious structure here. Um, and the fact that this man merely said the words, I'm a Christian, and my favorite book is Thessalonia, is <laughs> mind-blowing to me. Because yeah. in my opinion, I've I've still tried to issue the the values that I think are important within the Christian story. And so this man that never did ever at any point in his life was practically worshipped by many of the, my mm -hmm. peers in this area. So I found that to be disturbing, though I had long been out of the faith in my deconstruction. But what, about how old are you? It's really hard for me to tell. No worries. I'm 31 right now. Okay. So my deconstruction, I'm 37. My deconstruction started in like 2006. Okay. So, and it lasted for some time after that. I would actually probably 2004, right, right out of high school mm -hmm. and really hit that violent stage that, that we're going to come up to next Yeah. in 2006. So tell me about what that looked like. What, what was the transition from, you know, I'm questioning to, shit's falling apart <laughs> and, uh, so to any listeners here on the podcast if you haven't heard the first episode of the great deconstruction with lars Cade, i recommend that one i listened to that and felt yeah. a surprisingly significant amount of camaraderie with lars yeah. it was the overlap is pretty severe there yeah and like him like 2020 hit and being shocked out of the church routine the spiritual routine in addition to all of the political and religious chaos of you know, Christians should wear masks to protect the vulnerable, but we don't want to because they're oppressive. Christians should stay yeah. home and do Zoom church because with the exception of, you know, some elderly, pretty much everyone's got a mobile phone or computer and an internet connection and we can make this work. This isn't going to last forever, but we can make this work. And they're just pushback. Like, no, we got to be in church. You know, essentially like 
do, do the Christians believe the Bible? Because like the physical location of church is not what makes church church. That's not where God is present. It is the the grouping, the union of two or th- two or more people gathering in His name. Right. The Bible doesn't say you have to be physically located, <laughs> but you know you, you can gather online. You're still in community yeah. and camaraderie. It sucks. It's not as rewarding for most people as it is in person. But this is temporary. This too shall pass. And just the, this entitlement of, you know, we have to do church in person. So are you Christians no different from from Jews and Muslims, where you've got your holy cities and your holy sites where, you you know, it's better to worship there than elsewhere? No, we're different. We're different. It just, it's not lining up. And then factor on the political side of things where, you know, we, we, we've got the death of George Floyd, which is tragic. And somehow Christians seem to know everything going on there. And it's just a, you know, oh, it's just racism or, you know, it's not kingdom work but yet people are being oppressed and then the government gets involved and what disturbed me was the federal government's response to a lot of the protests and i would i was starting conversations with my parents at this time they weren't really religious in nature just like hey this is weird like you guys went through the 60s that was a pretty tumultuous time and i if i do my math they were slightly younger than i was in the 60s than i was during 2020. And that sounds like a horribly chaotic time, like a very, you know, we didn't have all the answers. The media was controlled by the government during the Vietnam era. It's very hard to get, you know, non-government sanctioned information out. And now we have people literally with cell phones disproving the government narrative about what's happening. And furthermore, the government's crackdown on mostly peaceful protests like when it turns not peaceful, it's usually the government instigating things, the federal troops, not necessarily the, the local police force but it just and then to hear you know my parents sort of defend the dis slash misinformation that trump was spouting off just because he's in front of a camera and wants to talk and doesn't really know what he's talking about and his very authoritarian you know i can't say the f word you know but he fascist you know, to them but you know his fascist like responses to this stuff it just didn't seem appropriate and i learned that i don't line up with my parents' views politically at all on on kind of how to employ the politics that you're interested in. And that kind of opened my eyes to back to the religious side of things. Like if if they are okay with this much authoritarian response on the political sphere, what levels of authoritarian behavior are also acceptable in the spiritual and religious sphere? Yeah. And I had been very depressed in 20... 19 because i had a lot of all the 10 years of buildup of cognitive dissonance stuff was taking a toll on me and so at the time you know, there were a lot of churches that my wife and i didn't fit into we had a highly sensitive kid at the time who just didn't like loud noises and loud groups and so we attended a house church and that house church was comprised of on any given sunday about 12 to maximum of about 30 people and a lot of them had a missionary background or at least a cross-cultural experience and it felt like home. But with the pandemic and us not being able to meet in person, we switched to Zoom for all the, the meetings. And in 2019, I learned that what filled me and gave me, you know, spiritual energy was not the sermon and the worship. Like I've never had a mystical spiritual high from music or sermons. So I've been always challenged intellectually. But, you know, summer camp, church, youth group revival, like, uh, you know, other kids are just on fire. They're glowing. They're vibrating, you know, whatever word you want to use. And I'm feeling none of this. And it's very confusing because I'm doing everything right. 
according to the Bible and I've got all the right beliefs. You know, I've been baptized at six. I'm not feeling this. And I learned, you know, my mom's kind of the same way. It's just she's got an intellectual faith and she kind of keeps it that way. Um, and that's okay. You know, she's she's told me she's, you know, fine with not feeling these things because she knows what she believes. And that's not what this faith is about. It's about that relationship with Jesus and to degree the the afterlife. But the coming out of that kind of depressive era, era in 2019, where I just did not like being in church, but I loved, I desperately needed that physical connection because after this house church service, we did potluck every Sunday. That yeah. is where church was for me, was that community group where a lot of the conversations are still spiritual, religious in nature, but it's not the liturgy. It's not the, you know, the corny slash can songs, the slightly in-depth but not really in-depth talks about the bible because you gotta the, the pastor has to you know make a sermon approachable by everyone and when that community got stripped away that communal aspect got stripped away in 2020 i filled that time that pressure and that you know guilt of not being able to attend in person with other things and i learned pretty quickly on that i am way less anxious in hindsight that that's the, the right feeling i'm way less anxious when i'm not in church with other Christians. And, you know, both my wife and I just were not really thriving in that church environment. And 2020, despite its difficulties from a spiritual perspective, was so freeing. <laughs> it was so, we recharged on so many levels by not having to put on our church face, I guess, for lack of a better word. You know, I had doubts about Christianity, not in the sense of I was a functional atheist in 2019, but I, I wouldn't accept that, I guess. And in 2020, with all this extra free time, because I wasn't socializing as much, I kind of reinvigorated my faith by dipping down into this intellectual wealth of knowledge that I had access to via podcasts and the internet. My mom, in fact, was the one who turned me on to a Old Testament Hebrew culture expert scholar named Dr. Michael Heiser. He runs a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. I learned so much about the Bible from him. And kind of like the intro message, not sermon, but he gave a talk at some conference that really shook me. And this is what my mom sent me, was that he was explaining kind of like how the Old Testament was written and how the mindset of the ancient Hebrews and all that. And, you know, my parents are fundamentalists, but they're like light fundamentalists. <laughs> my dad's a New Earth creationist. My mom... I don't quite know where she stands on that. My mom's very hard to get information out of. She's a very reserved person. In hindsight, as I've been discussing with my sister and learning more about trauma, she had a fairly traumatic childhood. And so she doesn't open up to people. And I don't think she'd ever admit that per se with that word, but she's described the few times she's described her childhood. Once you understand the word trauma and kind of like how that plays out in your life, that word applies very well to, <laughs> to the, the synonyms, I guess, that she used. So getting anything out of her is like pulling teeth. But one thing that I learned is that she is not really a biblical literist. Like if you're a true Bible translator, you cannot be a literalist because uh, one, right. she's trained in Greek and Hebrew. So she, she knows that, you know, the Bible better than most people. She's not a theologian. So she's not hypothesizing on the nature of God. She's like, this is what the Bible says. And we got to figure out how to interpret that or translate that into whatever language, you know, that we're translating the Bible to and find words that work and concepts and imagery that works. And Michael Heiser really changed my faith life by essentially saying that the Old Testament is written in such a way that you're better off thinking of it as a mythology, because the ancient Hebrews knew that the sun didn't stand still. They knew that, right. you know, two million Jews did not march out of Egypt. They knew yeah. that, you know, 100 people didn't kill 
on some random battle, you know, 10,000 people with chariots and whatnot. But the culture at the time was this braggadocious, you know, my God's better than your God. So they're like amping up their God and be like, look how cool he is by just kind of like inflating the numbers. And if you look at the archaeological historical record, secular scientists support that. Like everyone just bragged all the time. Like that's how it was. And I think due to, you know, focus on the family and just other influences in my life, I was struggling with like, how do we treat the Bible as literal, but not really because, you know, not even my dad truly believes that, but kind of, he's definitely, you know, like I said, you know, young earth creationist. So like, how do you carve up the Bible? All this is going on in 2020. How do you carve up the Bible into like what's true and what's mythology? And that was very taxing, (laughs) both cognitively and emotionally. Um, And after investing several hundred hours into Michael Heiser's blog and podcasts and learning so much about the mentality of ancient Hebrews and the mentality of early Christians, first and second centuries, and then stumbling across the Bible for Normal People podcast with Peter Enns. And That's a good one. Yeah. can't remember Jared's last name, but they came at the Bible from a very academic direction, just like Michael Heiser, but they tend to lean a little bit more liberal on both the political and the theological spectrum. And I kind of was in this this turning point at my faith journey at the time where it's like, do I want to be a conservative Christian now that's been my faith's been reinvigorated or a liberal one? And I pursued both. I mean, I kind of grew up on the conservative side, so I knew what that was like, but I pursued both and I, they just felt lacking to me. <laughs> and yeah. it wasn't until I had read The Sin of Certainty by Pete Enns, where he kind of talks about his faith journey and in a way his deconstruction. He's still very much a committed Christian. But what he deconstructed from was this certainty of he has the answers. He knows what truth is. And I realized that my entire life, my faith journey, all the modeling by the adults in in my life revolved around this certainty of like, we know the answer. If we don't know the answer, we know the answer's out there and it's kind of in this direction. And that just did not satisfy me because every Muslim out there knows the answer. <laughs> every Sikh right. knows the answer. Every Baptist, you know, I didn't grow up in a Baptist household. They have weird beliefs, apparently. They have the it's answer, also, but they're also wrong. Like, how can, how can everyone have the answer? It's also really common within Judaism to embrace that uncertainty. Yes. And that, that's one of the things that I learned that really opened my mind. Yeah. It, it's, it's like, oh, yes, this is, this is the word of God in the same way that you and I are created in the image of God. And it's our word. It's mm-hmm. us trying to explain our own history and events that we cannot fathom to understand. That's what makes it important or special. Yes. Not that it is God breathed or anything right. like that. And and that sort of thing, that sort of I guess revelation that you know the Jews didn't believe in Satan in the same way, and mm-hmm. the Jews have no concept of hell, and the Jews yeah. have no concept of a literal heaven. Mm-hmm. That's that sort of thing kind of makes you stop and think, well, where did Christianity get all this? You yeah. Know, what, what happened? And then you dive into church history and, mm-hmm. you know, Bob's your uncle. Uh, <laughs> yes. Everything just starts, everything starts going off the rails. That's very interesting. It, it's like it, you were talking about the, the political religious marriage that, mm-hmm. that has been going on in the United States. Which if I can interrupt, pretty much, I've learned that's yeah, been yeah, going yeah. on for the last 2000 years. Yeah, not just has, in Christianity. That political uh-huh. religious connection is human. That's every religion, yeah. every every political culture has that. What I what I struggle to understand is how 
I don't I don't really struggle to understand it, but John Brown, who is one of my personal heroes, the the abolitionists in the the 1800s, who who raided Harper's Ferry mm-hmm. and armed black men to to be able to fight for their own freedom, is is one of my heroes, and he was one of the most religious men of his day, staunch Calvinist, a bit overbearing, <laughs> and and yet you know as Calvinists can be, and yet he believed in the same book that was being used to justify slavery. Yeah. The same with Martin Luther King, who believed the same book as the guys who were in the KKK. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that contrast of what people can do with their belief in the Bible or what they can do with scripture as they want and how it reflects you is kind of a, a big eye opener or yeah. it was for me. And a last thing is Kristen Dumez, I, I don't know if you've read yes, her book, Jesus and I John did. Wayne, right? It. Great book. And I think it kind of hits a lot of the same points as Heiser's book. Yeah. But this this marriage, especially with American politics, is such a, a contrast from the Jesus that we see in the New Testament. So Jesus in the New Testament is telling you to separate yourself from the politics of your government. Yes. To not to not allow a man to have this much power and authority over you. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, if you if you spread that message, if you do it today here in America, I can guarantee you the same result. If you spread that message and tell people to sell all their property and tell them to give under Caesar what is Caesar's, except for they've they've sold everything. <laughs> so so there's nothing to give him. Yeah, that is the type of shit that gets you killed mm-hmm. by the government. And it's it's it sounds like I'm trying to preach some libertarian message, but it's not. I actually think this whole Jesus message was. Government bad, community good. Real simple. And it's like the church of today does not see the Beatitudes. They're just missing from the Bible, Yeah, which is a totally different world than, than what you see in the Christian church today or the Western church at the very least. It, how that is being justified, how that is lost, I think is largely just because people believe the Bible is the true one word of God. I don't know a goddamn thing about it. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it's this it's this belief followed by ignorance that is I think why Christianity will eventually fizzle itself out or at least in the form that it is now because it's kind of become this ludicrous concept. Hmm. I'll I'll move on to my next question. Sure. How would you what was the result? So you've deconstructed for 2 years. First, what was the the mental process like? Was there anguish? Was there, in my case, I, I say that my epistemological world flips flipped upside down and I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to, to understand life again. What was that like? And what, what was the result? You know, what is the product of that? Yeah. I, I also, I wouldn't use such fancy words because I haven't memorized them all, but <laughs> pretty much exactly what you said. I, I had to rethink everything about life and my beliefs because i realized that my faith was not my own it had been built for me by those who came before me and growing up in an isolated environment both intellectually and physically i had nothing to compare what was this truth from on high whether it was from the bible or what someone said about the bible and i just had to unpack so so much a key thing for me was the question of hell and the afterlife there's some fantastic books on that that if some of your listeners would would like to get into there's the evangelical universalist by gregory 
I can give you some of this in the show notes because I don't remember off the top of my head, but Evangelical Universalist. And then uh, there was another one on universal salvation from a more intellectual side of things. And so I kind of read things from both sides, if you will, like highly academic and sort of like for lay people by committed Christians who thought that the Bible supported universal salvation. And that helped a lot. The other thing that kind of helped me was my dad, when I was discussing some of these things with him, my dad told me that he didn't believe in eternal torment and suffering and, and the in hell, as is classically known, because the Bible doesn't support it. It doesn't talk about that. It talks about, you know, the lake of fire or there's, you know, gnashing of teeth and and all of that. But, you know, my dad essentially is an annihilationist. Like if you don't believe in Jesus by the time you die, and then there's that final judgment where he thinks there might be a chance you could change your mind. Once you're thrown into that, you know, lake of, not the lake of fire, but the the destruction in Revelation. My dad's a big Revelation guy. He loves End Times. It's his favorite book. He's invested so much time and study in, into that book. He really knows what he's talking about. I just don't buy it as a <laughs> authoritative right. source anymore. But I realized that I was okay with either outcome. You know, if by not believing in in Jesus and in, in, in the Bible, however you want to phrase that, I just poof out of existence. That doesn't sound all that bad, right. especially as a kid. You know, singing to Jesus twenty four seven for all eternity didn't sound like that much fun either. So like. You win some, you lose some, you know? But then some of these other authors were arguing for universal salvation where maybe hell, they're not saying this one way or another, just hypothesizing maybe hell is more like purgatory where you need the time to figure out to experience God's right. love that you didn't before. So that didn't sound too bad. Then I invested a lot of time into LGBT affirmation, some of the purity concepts, especially after reading Jonathan Haidt's book, like purity is largely a cultural invention. All of their, yeah. all the, the religion's sacred texts base their concept of what's pure and impure less so on what God thinks and more of their cultural context. So people are building their faith since the beginning <laughs> on kind of what they see around them. And it just clicked with me that I don't have to believe any of this. Like I tried to build up my faith between 2020 and January of 2022, to be honest. And the more I dug, the more it started to fall apart under its own weight and not through my own misconceptions or preconceptions, but just, it seems like people want to believe what they want to believe. And the missionary system, the evangelical industrial complex, for lack of a better word, that we have here, and my own experiences with, again, these committed Christians who say everything's important and then don't really live it out, especially in their political lives, they pick and choose their faith more than they're willing to admit and if I have to do that, because I had never done that before, I just inherited my faith from my environment. I realized that I didn't want to have that faith. I, I pretty quickly in 2020, you know, came out to my parents. I was like, I'm not going to call myself a Christian because the Christians that I see outside don't line up with my values and they don't line up with the Bible. And they kind of, like my dad's like, yeah, I haven't really called myself a Christian for years now. But in, in 2022, there came a point where... <laughs> You know, I, deep down inside, I knew that I didn't believe anything in the Bible that I had been taught. I still believe that the Bible is a good wisdom literature. I still believe that of all the religions out there, Christianity has the highest potential to be the correct one. But I also don't see the point, again, from, you know, that Sin of Certainty book in identifying what is the correct religion or the correct belief. Because there really is no correct. Everyone has their own version. So how can there be one correct one? And I'm not just talking about like, you know, Muslim versus Christian or Judaism versus Christian, like within the Christian denominations, wars have been fought over, you know, literal people killing each other <laughs> over 
some of these very minor sounding beliefs. And since the system hasn't benefited me, I don't really want to participate anymore. And that weighed on me so heavily because that meant that I could not only not call myself a Christian, but I couldn't really consider myself a theist anymore. I, I, I came out to my parents as agnostic and some of my close friends as agnostic in the middle of 2022. And I was only able to do that after intense therapy because just that psychological weight, that upbringing, that system, that, that you know, it, it's better to be gay than it is to be a non-believer <laughs> in the system that I've grown yeah. up in, that I just, you know, it just completely wrecked me for almost a month straight. Like I, I was difficult getting out of bed. It was impossible to just feel any peace because I was just wrestling. Like, how do I, how do I line these things up? And once I finally admitted to myself, when I came up to myself that I am an agnostic, although I think I would classify myself as an agnostic atheist, I, I felt, <laughs> I felt born again. <laughs> I don't know how to oh, put yeah. it. That 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 salvation yeah, story yeah. that we hear, where like my life was terrible, and then I accepted Jesus, and everything became okay. If you can perversely invert that, that that was my experience. Yeah, one hundred percent the same. That I felt and joy, and the ability to meet other people where they were at without having to be so defensive. Like, are these people in truth? Whether that's you know, are they a different religion, or are they right. saying the right things about the Bible? It just completely changed my world, and. The stepping stones for that process had been laid, like I said, over the last 10 years before that. I stumbled into a lot of intellectual or philosophical podcasts, particularly the Tim Ferriss podcast, where you've got these deep thinkers who talk about the meaning of life. And, you know, Gabor Mate had a lot of really interesting interviews with him. I think he's been on there two or three times talking about, you know, the nature of suffering and addiction and why people are in pain. And so, like, the psychological prospect concepts of growing up. I guess, for lack of a better word, outside of the Christian mindset, I could still see that people had meaning in their lives. I could see that they had joy and that they had peace. All these exclusive promises that are only allowed to Christians, non-Christians are experiencing. And as, you know, after attending college and leaving a more sh leaving that sheltered lifestyle as a missionary kid, I met more non-theistic people who were good people who had a you know stronger sense of morality than some of the Christians I eventually discovered would like it just felt like I've been lied to my whole life not that the bible isn't true but how to apply the bible as a christian I'd been lied to my whole life and you know pair that up with studying the bible really deeply by especially the conservative evangelical scholars like Michael Heiser I learned that it's not so black and white. It's not so cut and dry. You really have to build your own faith. And I just never really had it, I think. No. You know, I thought I did. I believed in all this stuff, but I, I never got that reciprocal. I don't know. I'm making a great argument for Calvinism, I think, here. In the sense that, you know, <laughs> I call God myself, didn't choose uh, me. So, uh, of course, I wouldn't uh, feel it. I frequently call myself a Calvinist atheist because I, I tell people that, you know, if faith is a gift from God, it's a gift that I don't have. Yeah, and that's like not that. on me. It's not something I can I can change or choose. And if I could, I probably would have cho chosen to, mm -hmm. to stay in the faith. You know, that, that's that that's a pretty common thread among people yes. that, that leave the faith. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, I can't make this happen any different. Like I I can't forget how to ride a bicycle. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't also immediately know how if I don't know how. It's like it. It's either you can or you can or you, you're convinced of what you're convinced of, and that's yeah. all you can do about it. But I think more specifically to to maybe flesh out a little bit about your question, I 
I think I experienced the biggest struggle that I had leading up to that and still slightly after is that sense of loss, that sense of community and identity. And like, I felt like I had withdrawn myself naturally from the community, but like actually admitting it to myself and then eventually to some friends and, and some family really finalized it. And there's just so much intense Com- like clinically complicated grief in that process. Like it, I don't recommend it. Like if you're happy <laughs> to stay in your faith, even if it sucks, that will be easier for you. But for me, it was not an, like it, there was no question. Like I was miserable until I admitted that I don't actually believe this. And and in some ways, I feel like that has made my faith, if you can call that call it that, stronger. Because you know, ultimately, I believe that it will all be okay. Like if God is yeah. real and does exist. If the Bible is true and that God is love and he understands us, we're made in his image, like this is just a natural process. And it's not that I expect to be, you know, come back to the faith anytime soon. I'm also not resistant to that. I just don't think it's likely because Christianity hasn't changed in the last 2000 years. So I don't know what will cause that to change in the next 20 or 30. But, you know, ultimately, I believe I choose to believe that God is a good guy. I don't buy into the the brimstone and hellfire and genocide versions of God. I think that's largely humans projecting their nature onto their God and making him sound cooler than the other gods who did that at the time. So the downside is pretty minimal for me from like a epistemological afterlife concept. But the changes in my life here now have been night and day. <laughs> it's been yeah. it's been very freeing to be able to just love people and not have to worry about converting them like that this kind of like low-key always there and not converting them maybe to jesus but converting them to the the truth the right answer as you can mm-hmm. tell with like interdenominational conflict like it just you're always in a defensive anxious state in christianity and i've yeah. lived that long enough and I, I choose not to participate in that which currently means i've lost all that community and that was extremely difficult is your your wife was a christian when you guys were married, is, is she still there or, or do you kind of go through this in this, in the same step? We tend to leapfrog each other on some of these things. She's the yeah. same age as me. So I think developmentally we're very <laughs> on track, you know, emotionally and, and cognitively. So this journey has been different for her. I would, I'd rather let her kind of explain that in her own terms, yeah. but we're very much on the same page. Yeah. I don't know if she would consider herself agnostic or an atheist, but she also wouldn't consider herself a Christian in the classical sense that she and I were both raised up in. Yeah, that's that can be the end of a marriage or the yes. end of a relationship at times. And I've seen that, but I've also seen it be the the crux of how people come together and learn to love each other more and, and learn patience. And so it's uh, I, I asked that not to be nosy, but yeah, you were married and that can it's a trial to go through deconstruction and be married at the same time. Yes. Especially in some situations. I have a friend who was a, a deacon elder at, at his church and he told his wife he didn't believe. And the way that his life fell apart was mm-hmm. just out of this world. I mean, the, the church was just after him and it was a more culty type church than most, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's frightening what can happen in those situations. But I yeah. think today versus back whenever I went through it, today people are a little more capable of handling. Yeah, it seems that way. You know, the questioner in their life, you know, the doubter. I'll ask one more thing and I'll, I'll let you go. And you kind of already hit on this within your, with your parents and, and their somewhat fundamentalism, though your father has kind of, kind of left a lot of that behind, it sounds like. What is your dynamic like with them? 
you know, do they understand this or resent you or any anything like that going on? I legitimately can't answer that question. Yeah. In the family history, my uncle also left the faith, my, my mom's brother. And my grandparents came from a Catholic and Episcopal background before they essentially converted to Church of Christ. And like the, I've talked to him about his deconversion coming up process. He and my mom still fairly reserved. And so it's been difficult to get some of the information I want out of it, but he's been pretty open about it. Uh, and he mentioned that there was some some stress or conflict or isolation, and then eventually that, that disappeared. And I've talked to another friend of mine who has missionary parents, and he came out as atheistic to them about a decade ago and talked about that struggle of disconnect. And within the last four years, he, he said, hey, you know, they've shown an interest in the relationship again. No. And one of the biggest emotional struggles for me that therapy helped me with was processing how my parents would handle coming out to them because I couldn't keep it a secret from them. I just, it's one of those things that just had to come out. And my worst fear in telling them was not that I'd be rejected, not that I'd be accepted, but that nothing would happen. And that is exactly what happened. I called them up one day (laughs) and said, you know, Hey, I, been wrestling with this for a long time. I want to let you guys know that, you know, as you know, I don't really consider myself a Christian, but I think I would consider myself agnostic. I'm tired of having to seek all the right answers. And I I tried my hardest (laughs) not to justify it and just say, this is where I'm at. And I said, you know, if if you want to talk about it in the future, I'm open to it. I don't want to talk about it right now on this call, but that's where I am. And my dad was very receptive towards that. He said, you know, I'm not happy that you're, I'm not happy to hear this, but I'm happy that you told us. And my mom, as I was talking through this, just formed this thousand yard stare and never said anything for the rest of the call. And that was in August, I think last year. So it's been six months. Very recently. Yeah. It's been six months and it's that conversation topics never come up again. It's not come up when we've met in person. It's not come up when I call him on the phone. I just had them here last week (laughs) and they were with us for about a week and we had a great time. That just never was a thing. Wow. That's that's interesting. My mom, it's kind of funny. Growing up, my mom was a partier, you know, a bit of a heathen, really a hedonist. She really sought her own pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I was a religious little kid who thought, oh, my God, my mom's going to hell. My mom's oh, going man. To hell. Uh, it was torture for me. Yeah, and, I can uh, imagine. As soon as I spoke the word out loud and, and wrote the first blog that explained this experience and what I had gone through, and declared myself as a non-believer, she like did a flip, and it's <laughs> like she became on fire, a hundred percent gospel holy roller, and that that change has been a hard one to navigate for us, and especially now I have a, a trans partner that is a, a a tough point for her. So there's all kinds of things, but but also you know I've I've learned to have conversations with her about. Hey, you know, all the shit you were doing when I was younger, that had an impact on me. Mm-hmm. You know, you made decisions that were that were bad for me and my my siblings. So there there has also been some healing because of some very frank conversations. Good. And I I suspect and I you know, I can't possibly predict, but I suspect that your parents will find a way to communicate about this civilly. Yeah, my mom and I do somehow, and it, it just it works now. But it did take quite a few years before we could actually approach it. Mm-hmm. But that required me to be brutally honest about some things. Yeah, and 
to also say for me to say this is a time for you to listen and try to understand some mm-hmm. things and and heard of it receive that but i hope that does get better it is still fresh so yeah don't expect it to stay that way forever. I, in, in my experience, it doesn't stay that way forever. And you don't sound like a combative person. You don't have any of that in you. So I am all the much easier. Uh, Are there, you really? There's some history you between us <laughs> on that area. Okay. It's largely on the political sphere. Like I said, I said some of that stuff yeah. from 2020. So I think my mom's always said she's she was afraid of me, my, my intellect, ever since I was a little yeah, kid. I got that a lot, too. Yeah. And my dad just cognitively processes things slower than my mom does so like talking to them both at the same time is difficult just because you have to move at different speeds so yeah ultimately i'm hopeful that we'll have some productive conversations but there's also a good chance we might not like my uncle kind of set the tone for i guess effective conversation like i don't quite know how he's done it but i've my whole life part of the reason why it was so difficult to come out to them is i've heard how they talked about him my whole life Uh, as you know this mistaken guy who's stubborn who won't see the truth and won't sit down and have a discussion and you know i've learned having had discussions with my uncle that he's a great discussor he discusses things well <laughs> but like what you were touching on the discussion both parties have to be in a position where they're willing to be curious and learn from the yeah. other person and even if you don't believe what the other person says you still have to accept that they believe what they say uh, and again my parents left the united states in their late 20s and early 30s and they've been in guatemala ever since so they are almost as guatemalan wow. as they are american and well more so in some ways just because yeah. they've spent the majority of their life there and they went yeah. at a time when there was no internet there was limited connection so their version of the states is in some ways this hybrid mix between 1980s america and then social media infested 2010s plus usa and yeah. that blending has left them somewhat sheltered in their own way. And just the, the, the nature of the mission field, working with other missionaries, like they don't really interact with non-Christians who aren't the recipients of their mission work. And so there's a lot that they just don't have practice or experience with. And that makes conversation hard because they don't have that innate curiosity because they don't know what's out there in a way. Like, I, I, again, they're 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 old adults they know not i don't mean that derogatorily but they have life experience but not in this area to the degree that they do and they have a family history on both sides of their family with resistant family members who don't want to convert so i can't imagine what they're going through emotionally i i definitely sympathize with them and i just hope that eventually like you said like and one of my other friends said is eventually the conversations will happen and i'm just not going to try and push it and rush it. It's got to be on their own time. Yeah, I think it's also a good idea to take them, take those conversations one bit at a time. You don't mm-hmm. have to get it all out in, in the same day. You know, it can be, let's talk about why, you know, let's talk about the things that happened when I was a child and let's talk about why my doubt started there. And then yeah. we'll, talk, we'll finish that conversation and then have another one later. And mm-hmm. you don't have to get it all out of the same day. My mom is, is really guilty of, saying just tell me what happened just tell me <laughs> and i'm like you got five hours it's too much it's a lot <laughs> it's so much so and it's her thing with me she she's always said that i studied the bible too much hmm. and that it that's why i became an atheist that's why i'm so fundamentalist and so for her it was that intellectual pursuit that was somehow also scary that mm-hmm. the fact that i loved god kind of scared her and 
she thinks ultimately ended up in and the result that I, that she has is this godless heathen of a son. <laughs> but you know, I, our relationship's better than it has been in many years, and I I went through a very traumatic childhood, which is why I became so religious. Ultimately, is mm-hmm. because I needed a dependable, loving father to to dote on me, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's I saw that in in religious faith and in trying to prove myself to God. Mm-hmm. And I think she understands stuff like that now and, and has kind of come around to the fact that it was her doing and the people she allowed in her life that actually put me here mm-hmm. <laughs> and and into where I was. You know, that's yeah. why I became so religious in the first place. Well, Joe, I, I this has been a great conversation. I think this might be one we could continue at some point because sure, I think it was really good. Um, you're you're great on the microphone. You, you sound good and you know, you know how to lead your own discussion, really. So <laughs> thank you. I would love to have you again. And I hope you'll send me some links to various resources you'd like to share. And sure. So I can put it in the show notes. I, I won't take any more of your time. I appreciate you, you coming on. And it'll probably be a few weeks before I actually publish this. But fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did, too. You're, uh, if, you, if you have any final words you'd like to say i'll let you say them now and then i'll end the call not really no you know okay. you know where to find me quigs.link and just be gentle on yourself and gentle those around you because like you just described with your mom that had to be a yeah. difficult process too we're all we don't know what it's like to be in other people's shoes and so a little grace right. and patience is required from everyone yeah i think grace is everything i think you said a lot there and we can even support that idea with the Bible. So yes. <laughs> everybody should be happy with that with that as a final word. Yeah. That showing grace will get you pretty far in life. Indeed.